0: Hello and welcome to the Tea Leaves Podcast, where we sit down to have an ongoing conversation on the Indo-Pacific century, brought to you by The Asia Group. Hello, I'm Kurt Campbell. And I'm
1: Rich Furman. Each episode will bring you into the discussion with the most prominent policymakers, artists, journalists, business and thought leaders driving the Indo-Pacific from New Delhi to Tokyo.
0: Today, we are extremely lucky to be joined by my good friend and someone who really needs no introduction. I know everyone says this, but we have in our studio today, former Prime Minister of Australia, the Honorable Kevin Rudd. Prime Minister Rudd has an exceptional biography from growing up on a farm in Queensland to becoming Prime Minister of Australia to appearing on the Tea Leaves podcast today. (laughs) He really has led a fascinating and consequential life. This may be his biggest moment right here. (laughs) (laughs) If our listeners want to learn more about his incredible life and career, I encourage you uh, all to pick up Kevin's uh, autobiography, Not for the Fainthearted, A Personal Reflection on Life, Politics and Purpose, which just came out last year. Uh, uh, In all seriousness, in addition to leading Australia during an incredibly consequential time, Kevin has invested a considerable amount of his time and career to studying and analyzing the rise of China. And he is a uh, thought leader with respect to the uh, rising significance of the Asia-Pacific region uh, in the uh, modern 21st century. Kevin is currently the president of the Asia Society Policy Institute. Um, And as I think I just heard, Kevin, you are also getting your doctorate uh, with a focus on the worldview of Chinese President Xi Jinping at Jesus College uh, at Oxford. So both you and Rich have something in common. Um, I can be on your thesis committees. <laughs> That's uh, right. But- we just have to finish our doctorate. <laughs> yeah, now. exactly. But seriously, uh, Kevin is one of the great statesmen of Asia. When I was at the State Department, the um, uh, the telegrams or the cables, that letters that Kevin would send to uh, President Obama had uh, more import and had a greater shaping role on American strategy than any leader in Asia. So we're thrilled to have you and, and Kevin, we just want to get right to it.
1: Uh, Kevin, so tell us a little bit before we dive into the strategic and the foreign policy and your time as, as prime minister, but just tell us what it was like, uh, growing up on a farm and in Queensland and how you became interested in, in foreign affairs and specifically China.
2: Well, Rich, um, thank you to both you and Kurt for having me on this program. I think after Tea Leaves, it's Hollywood next. So, yeah, I mean, this is <laughs> That's the
1: route most people
2: take. Yeah, it's the prep com yeah. on your way to Hollywood and the silver screen. It's what they always said about politics back home it's Hollywood for ugly people. <laughs> now, what's it like growing up on a farm? Well, I'm not quite sure where you guys grew up, but it's all I knew. So, small town Australia. Our local town had about 160 people in it, one school, four teachers, no shoes. Um, That was what it was like, but it was great. It was a good, solid state education. The farm was about four or five miles from town. I'd walk every day and walk home, Uh, and it was just an idyllic environment for a kid to grow up. Neither of my parents had ever been to high school. Mm. They started high school, but they never finished. They certainly never darkened the door of university. Um, but mom always encouraged me to read books and, uh, that's where I think my interest in the world came from.
0: So Kevin, your dad died young and, uh, I've read a lot about your, uh, your biography and it, and it was during that period when you were young that you were attracted to the labor party and to, to the cause of working people and taking care of, uh, families that struggled. Um, give us a sense of how that early part of your career was shaped.
2: Well, I grew up in a part of Australia, which is politically progressive as rural Tennessee. Uh, So not big out there on the capital P progressive stakes. But something happens when your life changes in our case. uh, My father was a share farmer. We had no property. He was killed in an accident. And suddenly you're relying upon the charity of relatives. And it's a fairly humiliating experience. So I think largely through that, I discovered politics, which is every person, whatever their background, should be given a decent chance in life. Uh, particularly when sometimes people in life get dealt an unfair hand. So that's why I became interested in the Labor Party. None of my parents were in politics. Both of them voted conservative to the extent that I know, and politics was never discussed at home, except for the sheep price and the wheat price and the beef price. They were the big political discussions around our table. Mm -hmm.
1: But you became interested in in Chinese language and Chinese history and Chinese culture and Mandarin Chinese, and I where, where does that come from? Was that something you just picked up on your own, or did you have influences that drove you in that direction?
2: No, I'd actually never met anyone who was Chinese mm. until I went to university. Mm. If you grew up in rural Tennessee, or its right. Australian equivalent, right. it's not known for its Chinese restaurants, probably. <laughs> I think right. we had one uh, which famously had a sign out the front, Chinese and Australian food. <laughs> <laughs> and when you ate the Chinese food, you weren't quite sure whether it too was Australian or mm-hmm. It was generally dreadful. Mm-hmm. No, but my mother, she as um, an uneducated woman, a product of the depression, a young girl during the depression. So that whole self-educated generation believed in, quote, self-improvement was the term that they used. So she used to buy books. And so she took a big interest in the world and would read anything she could find and then feed that to me. She came to me one day with a book about archaeology. And up the back, there are a couple of pages on China. After you'd done the tour d'horizon of you know Egypt, Mesopotamia, Greece, Rome, right. etc. And so that kind of caught my eye, these sort of strange fluted roofs. What was all that about? Uh, and then secondly, um, I think when I was about 13, she comes into my room, plonks a newspaper onto the bed and says, read that, it's going to change the world. It's a report of uh, China finally being admitted to the UN in 1971. And uh, I knew nothing about this, but I started reading it and following it. And so I just became intrigued about how all this uh, was unfolding. And And sooner or later, I just developed a curiosity, which is to understand this extraordinary thing called the Middle Kingdom. I should probably try and learn the language. So off I went to university.
1: And, and you decided after university, though, that you wanted to serve in the Foreign Service. And...
2: They're, they're the only ones who'd take me. It was <laughs> pretty grim employment I don't, I don't, prospects in those days. Oh, both. you're a graduate in Chinese language. Thank you very much. Yeah, but how, yeah. Did, how
1: did that shape? How did that shape your view of politics that came later? Um, what was that experience like, and how does it serve you uh, even today?
2: I think the best traditions, the United States Foreign Service and the U.S. State Department, a bit like ours is simply the training it gives you to think clearly, to analyze clearly, and to write clearly. Mm. Prior to that, I think I was a bit of a slob, uh, intellectual slob. Um, but these guys actually sharpen you up, uh, you know, from the cable traffic curve. And you know, Rich, as well, that when you get this stuff, you've got to be able to condense it, synthesize it, so that folks who don't have much time can read it. So that, for me, was a useful professional skill. But then being set loose on the Middle Kingdom, as the august first secretary at the Australian Mission in Beijing. Uh, All care, no responsibility. I was responsible for domestic political analysis, something which I've been doing ever since Mm -hmm. to this very day. And so suddenly you're in the middle of something you've been studying for five years solid at university. You have suddenly got access to other sources of information from the intelligence community and wherever else. And you've got to try and make sense of what was still then and certainly today still is an opaque political system.
1: Mm.
0: Kevin, uh, we're jumping around in your career, but when you became prime minister, I think one of your most... That happened after I was first secretary. That's right. (laughs) (laughs) One of your most important contributions, in my view, was helping the United States understand that, of course, we had hugely consequential and important undertakings in the Middle East and South Asia, of which you were a leading voice that uh, supported Australian engagement in, but you helped carefully make the case that the United States had to invest more and support um, stronger diplomacy and defense engagement in Asia, not just in Northeast Asia, but Southeast Asia and also Australia. I'd be curious, I I mentioned at the outset, we were all jealous at the State Department because the person who could really influence President Obama was one Kevin Rudd? I, I wonder if at that at the time you understood that, and how much?
2: No, I didn't have a clue. I was just in Australia trying to do a job, <laughs> yeah. stay in office, and handle a global but, financial crisis. But you know, you helped. That's the honest answer. You
0: helped shape the U.S. decision uh, to uh, to join the East Asia Summit, um, the engagement of Myanmar, uh, the decision that we would play a more active role in the ASEAN Regional Forum the uh beginnings of dialogue about a stronger american military commitment in australia all those things happened under your watch that and, just and i think
2: early tpp we yeah, talked about exactly
0: that. not just so but it was it was not just happenstance there had to be strategy there so no modesty kevin how did you think it through and and how did you you know we often talk about australia being able to punch above its weight but the ability to really shape the course of the United States is not an easy thing and you managed it.
2: Well, as you know, Australians are very good at modesty. <laughs> not. <laughs> um, no, I had no consciousness really of any effect I had here. When you're in political office and when you're a prime minister, frankly, you don't have a lot of time to, as it were, think through the final consequences of what you do. Uh, you can think through how you can influence events, having analyzed them carefully. I'm or I was always prepared to Uh, take a policy risk to obtain a big goal. But at the end of the day, you never know how it's going to land with those who ultimately make the decisions, which is you guys here in Washington on so many of these things. So on the ones that you've just run through, my core concern after Afghanistan and Iraq, and Australia supported the United States in both those endeavours, was that the perception had grown uh, considerably across Southeast and East Asia that you guys were going to become permanently preoccupied politically, strategically, militarily, um, and the expenditure of blood and treasure uh, in the wider Middle East, which we had always seen ourselves as a vortex from which nobody ever returns. That was kind of our dim, deep, dark view. And that was someone who had an interest in the Arab world. I mean, I wasn't dismissive of it and certainly many friends in Israel. So I kind of knew something of the region, though I would never call myself an Arabist or a Middle Easternist. So my gut told me, and based on a lot of experience in Beijing, that our Chinese friends were delighted by the fact that you guys had disappeared into the Middle East vortex, uh, and in their view, hopefully never to be seen again. That's why I began talking early to President Obama about uh, when the topic came up about the US uh, force review of the United States Armed Forces driven by budget needs at a very simple line to the president, which is, Barack, bottom line is this. In Asia, we'll simply look at whether you have withdrawn one rivet from uh, one uh, side of one naval vessel anywhere currently under Pacific command. And if that happens, then we'll conclude you are out forever. So you can maintain what you've got there or increase it if you can. But if you start incremental reduction, it'll be read in headlines across the region. What you do with CENTCOM, what do you do with the fleet based at Bahrain, what do you do with NATO? Up to you. You might get the Europeans to start paying for their own defence. That might be helpful. But the bottom line is uh, the neighbourhood in this Pacific century will be looking to see whether or not you are long-term strategically serious about staying, because if we form the view you're not, everyone will start adjusting their strategic direction as night follows day.
0: mentioned a little bit earlier um, uh, China's views about the United States. Um, More than any statesman of modern times, you've made um, a study of China. Uh, You are on uh, personal terms with uh, every leader in the Chinese presidium. I'd be curious if you could just give us a few minutes. What's going on in China? We see headlines of uh, president for life and Uh, decisions taken economically that appear to make it difficult for international firms to be competitive. We see nationalist slogans and frankly, friends who were very open uh, uh, in China, less open in conversation. Uh, Give us a sense of how to interpret recent events.
2: I think it's best to see it in these terms. We are entering into a new phase. Um, By that I mean I'm not just mimicking Xi Jinping's term a new period, Xin Shidai. I'm talking about a new phase in our analysis of China. Mm. Phase 1, pre-78. Phase 2, since 78. Phase 3, beginning sometime over the last five years. Uh, Phase 1, let's call it the grand phase of ideology and ideological failures. Great leap forward plus cultural revolution equals bad, bad, bad. Phase two, Deng comes back and says, unless we rehabilitate the economy and raise people's living standards, the legitimacy of this party will just be shredded to pieces. And so we had socialism with Chinese characteristics. The Chinese characteristics became the synonym for capitalism, and socialism became the synonym for whatever else was remaining. And we've seen the consequences of the success of that strategy over 35 years. But over the last five years, um, there's been a reappraisal and a resetting, partly because of the success of phase two. Uh, I won't say the economic reform project has been done, but it's been solidly achieved. Uh, Living standards are now low middle income level. China is now the second largest economy in the world. When they began this process, their economy was the same size as Australia's. And so what we now see with Xi Jinping's leadership is a concentration of political power around uh, himself. we see a reassertion of the party apparatus over the state machinery as the vehicle for ultimate political and policy control uh, that is a departure on the previous dung Zhurongji revolution. on economic policy we see a reassertion of the role of state-owned enterprises and mixed messages to the future role of the private sector in the Chinese domestic economy and abroad. And in the region, we see an increasingly activist China uh, with its 14 neighboring states, and also in its maritime periphery, as you Americans know full well. Activism in terms of its continental periphery through one belt and road. Levels of activism which were not characteristic of the pre-2012 administration. And finally, what you see is a China also, which is now, in its own way, seeking to influence the rules of the international uh, rules based system that we've had since 44,
0: 45, 48. And so, apart from all that, nothing's changed. But, but Kevin, I do I want to focus on one thing. you, you you've um you've given some fascinating commentary around the decision that will leave Xi Jinping in power. Um, uh, perhaps for decades. Tell us about that. So if you look at the great experiment of Deng Xiaoping and what he's accomplished and Zhang Zemin after him, of course, the modernization of the economy and all the things that you allude to, but also surrounding leadership with mechanisms for collective decision-making, very important contributions in that stage of Chinese history. We're now in a situation today where even senior interlocutors indicate that almost every decision in some way has to be taken by xi jinping what's the meaning of that and and what were the inspirations behind it other than just sheer power
2: i think this is where we go to the question of what is xi jinping's personal worldview let's take as the assumption that he is the most powerful leader since Deng, and probably the most powerful leader now since mao For me, the real question, therefore, is if that is so, uh, what is the worldview he's seeking to reflect through the instruments of party and state power which he now exercises? I think the big thing in Xi Jinping's personal psychology, to the extent that we can understand it, is that he sees himself genuinely as a man of destiny. Uh, He sees himself as a man to preside over China becoming the world's greatest power. Uh, he sees himself as a man ultimately with the destiny perhaps even to return Taiwan to the motherland's embrace, to use their term, um, and also uh, to defeat history as we've interpreted in the West. That is the assumption that once per capita income levels rise to a low to middle income status, the inevitable flow through effect occurs, namely uh, that people begin to ask for political reforms as well, and in time you will see often an untidy evolution into one form or other of small L or larger L liberal democracies, of which we see a number of others across East Asia Indonesia being perhaps the most recent. Whereas his view is, nah, we've been around for 5,000 years. Screw that. Uh, We can uh, row our own boat uh, into the future, which is effectively a state capitalist model. Uh, an authoritarian capitalist model, as they would see it. Can he succeed with that particular worldview? Uh, Open question. Um, On the actual implications of his change uh, to the Constitution to provide the abolition of term limits for the presidency, the fact that that succeeded with barely any dissent reflects his significant power consolidation in the last five years. But I wouldn't be surprised when we get to five years' time. He may surprise us all again. Maybe not by staying on as president of the country, but what we may see is a further political innovation, which is a reconstitution of the office of party chairman, as existed in Mao's time, um, whereby the transfer of effective policy and political and ideological power from the state apparatus to the party haven't been complete, He becomes chairman again of that institution so that no, as it were, leader for life as president is sustained. Someone else will be president, but it may be a more ceremonial role.
1: Yeah. Kevin, what do you say uh, to like-minded nations, uh, the United States, Australia, Japan, that are watching this set of developments in China? and certainly while you were prime minister, is this um, a set of benign activities? You you refer to it as Chinese activism, or is it something much more um, dangerous that we should be uh, mounting a counter uh, approach to? And this gets into a big debate about containment or non-containment and can we even do that but where are you on what we need to be doing if you're in the community of democracies well
2: let me answer in these terms i'm always hesitant given i run a think tank here in the united states to run around this place telling you guys what you should do last time i looked at my passport i'm not an american citizen so it's kind of easy to roll around america and say listen you bunch of Dumbo's, you should be doing X, Y, and Z, A, B, and C. That, I think, is kind of cheap politics. So I tend to do that more privately than publicly. We'd, we'd welcome anything no, 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 here no. like that. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, but Bring it on. Yeah. <laughs> no, no. A couple of other things I'll say, though, which is let me be very clear about the fact that China is not status quo. In each of the categories I referred to before, either it's domestic politics, Uh, its view of its uh, uh, unrealized territorial aspirations in the South China Sea and in Taiwan, um, its uh, attitude to its relationships with neighboring states, its desire to boot you guys out of East Asia and the West Pacific over time, uh, and its desire to use its uh, economic influence in the world as the indispensable economic power uh, to then provide political influence and foreign policy influence and therefore become the indispensable country. Uh, these are not status quo considerations. They are changes, deep changes. Now, what other states cho- choose to do about that if they accept the analysis as a matter for them? And I bring to my second point about Australia. I can speak about that because I've been there and I've had a few robust comments to make about my successor in recent times. I think for countries like us, you know what the number one consideration is? Are you guys going to remain, you Americans? Mm. Serious question. Um, So when you're running around domestically and having this sort of rolling sort of um, uh, uh, presidential seminar or congressional seminar about what is the nature of our alliances? Will we support them for the long term? Are we with them? And will we be permanently uh, a major strategic presence or the major strategic presence in the Pacific century in the Pacific? That is the core analytical question which every capital from Beijing through Pyongyang, Seoul, uh, Tokyo, through Taipei down to Canberra and all points in between and across to New Delhi are asking themselves. Because individually, uh, each of us will have some difficulty, in as it were, representing um, a direct challenge to a an assertion of an alternative regional or global view on the part of the Chinese. And the second calculus is this. What we do in the meantime is what I've sought to do in Australia when leading it, which is to run a balanced uh, China strategy, which is always prepared to say to our Chinese friends, no, when we need to. on foreign investment on human rights and God knows whatever else, but also comprehensively to cooperate with the Chinese wherever we can across the full economic gamut. And China now represents about one third of all Australian exports. So doing that in a balanced way requires difficult political leadership in each country, not lurching one way or frankly the other. But the game changes if you decide, you the United States, decide ultimately to change the strategic game yourselves, which comes back to a question of US domestic politics.
1: So you mentioned New Delhi and uh you've the, been there mate in fact the last time we met was uh sitting in the u.s embassy in in new delhi you were the distinguished ambassador wow. you know about right. this country oh, okay. well i'm just you, an episodic visitor you, to you india. know a lot about it too i want to um i want to ask you about a concept that i think was actually hatched when you were prime minister which is this idea of the quad australia japan the united states and india and i think we're into the second iteration of the quad but what happened with the first iteration of the quad that didn't didn't work so well? I'm just trying to set the record straight for people about what happened with Quad One. Uh, quad One, if you like,
2: um, was a nascent concept in a, from around about the middle of 2007, uh, at toward the end of the uh, uh, Bush administration. Uh, our diplomatic reporting at the time, when we took office at the end of 2007, suggested that New Delhi was, in fact, uh, wobbling considerably on this question. And I've subsequently confirmed that with many Indian friends who were in the government at the time. The external propaganda that uh, India was rock solid, Japan was rock solid, uh, and, the Austra- and the United States was rock solid, it was just the bunch of peaceniks who had just been elected in Canberra who were a problem. I've heard that uh iteration of that story a few times it is is frankly a load of codswallop um and if you look at the diplomatic record and the reporting record of what was happening in new delhi at the time it's quite a different story second thing is you're looking at a period also when abe san was um, uh prime minister for the first time and frankly the prospects of him as opposed to the dpj uh coming in uh, coming into and holding power were fairly thin And as you know, we then entered into an extraordinary period of the DPJ in the government of Japan, where, shall I say, the Japanese became strategically soft um, and presented, I think, a problem for all of us. Uh, We were also mindful of that. But there was a third factor as well, and this was a big one, which is still relevant today. Uh, Namely, uh, if you are the government of Australia, looking at your long-term strategic interests, Do you wish to have a strategy for dealing with China or in a relationship with China more generally, which in the future is largely contingent on the then state, future state, of the China-Japan relationship? Now, you guys have a bilateral security treaty with Japan, we do not. But given the historical toxicity of China-Japan, And the fact that Abe, and at that stage, we had so many shrine visits to uh, Yakusuni that we'd got a lost count. Uh, This caught us some reservations as well. So we decided to take a strategic pause. What are circumstances like 10 years later? Well, Her Majesty's loyal opposition, as it now is in Australia, have asked my views on this. And my views are fairly simple, is that they should maintain an open mind on the Quad now. Uh, They should uh, take advice from the foreign defence and intelligence community if they form government next year or when the election is due and then take a decision at that point. So so far as I'm advised, they have not ruled this out because a number of factors have changed in the intervening decade. Kevin, um, what should the United States do about TPP? Well, for me, Kurt, this has always been sort of a political, sorry, political and policy no-brainer. Uh, I think there has been such excessive analysis in this country about how the Americans and the US economy might lose through TPP, as opposed to uh, the parallel analysis about how the lifting of all boats in the wider regional economy ultimately adds to the American economy. Um, And so, therefore, to find one means or another to keep this idea afloat, either for a new Republican administration, if President Trump doesn't make it through to the end of his first term, uh, or if he does and there is a different president uh, after the next presidential election, or if there is a Dem, whoever the Dem might be, it is axiomatic for the future strategic interests of the United States and the Asia-Pacific region for you to be in it. Um, And I think the TPP-11, having followed this quite closely through the work of my colleague in the Asia Society Policy Institute, Wendy Cutler, formerly Deputy USTR, uh, is that um, the TPP-11 have been very careful about leaving the door open uh, for American accession after the event. It will not be as beneficial a deal as the one that you agreed and had negotiated during the last days of the Obama administration. Um, But it's still there, and therefore the vehicle for American accession uh, still exists but it would possibly be an amended set of arrangements. So my message to Uncle Sam and all those who love her dearly and the people of the United States is, for God's sake, this is all upside and the downside is really manageable.
0: Well, Prime Minister Rudd, Kevin, this has been truly fantastic. It's always a great honour and pleasure to sit down with you and what an incredible opportunity at just the right time. So much is happening in the world, and you 've helped illuminate it for us uh, today uh, we can 't thank you enough for joining us Kevin thank you
1: yeah mr prime minister thank you and and your insights on Asia and politics generally uh have been terrific, and who knows, maybe after the doctorate back into back into politics uh, again.
2: You know, it's a humbling thing actually being a student again, but given I decided to write something on Xi Jinping's worldview, I decided for the first time in my life, I should really be disciplined about it and read all this stuff before I reached a considered conclusion. So I decided to do it under professional
1: supervision. Oxford, China Center. It's great. Great. It's amazing. Thank Thank you. you. Thank you all for listening. Please be sure to rate us on iTunes, Stitcher or wherever you get your podcasts and we'll see you next time.